0: Hello, I'm Nathan Cohn, class of 1995, and I'm not a wine connoisseur. I'm kind of like that guy in the movie Sideways, played by Thomas Hayden Church. You Remember, he's there at the wine tasting, and Paul Giamatti, his friend, is talking about wood and flowers and other elements of the wine. Thomas Hayden Church takes a gulp and says, tastes pretty good to me. It's a funny moment, and while I admit I'm currently that guy, I don't necessarily always want to be. I'd like to know more about what it is I'm eating and drinking. Welcome to the Learning Together podcast series from Trinity University, designed especially for alumni featuring faculty, alumni, and other distinguished guests who have established themselves as experts in their fields. And today, you're going to enjoy a conversation on wine selections with a winemaker who is nobody but our own alumnus, Adam Lee, class of 87. One of the greatest things about Pinot Noir is, unlike some other
1: grape types, Pinot seems to drink well early in its life. I mean, you can buy a bottle off the shelf right now of a new Pinot Noir, and it generally drinks pretty well.
0: Over the past 20-plus years, Pinot Noir specialist Adam Lee has attained a cult-like following for his Suduri wines and a reputation as one of California's top winemakers. Hugh Dashbach, class of 1995, no slouch himself when it comes to knowledge of food and drink, will engage him in the conversation.
2: Adam Lee, hi, how are you? I'm great, how are you? It's wonderful to see you back here on campus for Alumni Weekend of 2017. I'm delighted to be here. This is fantastic. Well, Adam, it's a pleasure to have you back here, and we're gonna talk a little bit about some wine and food and uh, the vineyards that you've cultivated and a little bit of your experience with that. So, you're class of 1987, that's correct? Yes. I'm class of 95, so a little bit of a gap, but still somewhere back in the day for both of us. And as a big wine drinker, and a wine lover, I'm curious just how you first kind of got into this. When did you first get into wine?
0: Oddly
1: enough, I grew up Southern Baptist in Austin. And I never drank till I got to Trinity, and then I drank a bit every now and then at Trinity. But it really wasn't fine wine. I was a junior in college here and dating a girl that was a senior, and she graduated and got a job out in Walnut Creek, California, and I spent the summer between my junior and senior year out there. My parents weren't too thrilled about that particularly. But we used to go wine tasting. And um, we would go to uh, Sterling. We would go to Mandavi. We thought we knew about wine because we like Mandavi white Zen better than we like Sutter Home white Zen. <laughs> Uh, we discovered this one little place that we used to love to picnic, though, and it was a small winery overlooking the Russian River, and it was the first red wine I ever fell in love with. It was the 84 Rocchioli Pinot Noir, and Rocchioli is considered to be one of California's top Pinot Noir producers to this day. And that was my first real exposure to red wine, So, um, and it was a really good one. Of course. So Trinity really played a part, at least falling in love with a girl at Trinity at the time. The relationship with Pinot lasted, the relationship with the girl didn't last.
2: So yeah, the, so the journey from Texas to Sonoma, I guess, that's sort of how that started. Were you from Texas originally? Yeah. How'd you end up at Trinity?
1: I was born and raised in Austin. I looked at several different schools. I looked at Grinnell as one of the choices, but it was just too far to get to basically. Um, a few other places, but when I first came here to Trinity, I loved it and it was far enough away from mom and dad that they weren't showing up all the time, but close enough I could get home when I really needed to.
2: When did, when you got into the wine thing, you know, you got, you got out of Trinity, I guess, How did that turn into a professional endeavor for you?
1: So I I graduated from Trinity, and I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was a combination of history, English, double major, and poli-sci minor. I wrote a paper for a professor that was here, Gary Cates, um, and kind of specialized in the comparative history of the French and American prison systems. And shockingly enough, that didn't lead to a job after college right (laughs) away. I had fallen in love with wine, as I described, and I ended up uh, getting a job in a wine store in Austin, Texas. And it was a fantastic store. Uh, Wines were very affordable back at that point in time. And I moved from assistant manager of the store to manager to president of the the company. I learned one big lesson about wine when I was working there. I had been set up on a blind date and brought along a bottle of 85 Chateau Margaux. So one of the greatest That's and a classic yes. classic bordeaux right and um, it was fantastic the the girl and i went out for a year afterwards but every time we would go out i'd bring along a nice bottle of wine and she'd say oh this is a nice wine adam but it doesn't quite taste like that 85 chateau margaux <laughs> did so i did learn a lesson there that you can start out too high and, and kind of go down from there so you,
2: you set a bit too uh, high of a standard there huh i did Uh, I
1: I ended up moving from there to um, Dallas and became the wine buyer for Neiman Marcus Department Stores in Dallas. I met my wife there. She was one of the food buyers, and we started dating and decided to take a chance and move out to Northern California and get involved in the wine business out there.
2: So you started Sidori Wines in, I think your first release was in 94, right? Uh, The first vintage was 94. We released it in 95. Yes. Okay. So what kind of timing goes into that as far as... You know, for a 95 release, how, how many years or how much time did you put to put into that before it so we had, got into the glass? Yeah, we
1: had $24,000 to start the whole um, adventure. And it was, um, we started buying grapes in the spring of that year. So we looked at several different vineyards, found a place that would allow us to buy grapes by the acre. And that was something that was really important to us winemaking-wise. Pinot Noir is a very fickle grape if the yields are too high. The quality is not as good. We wanted to make something really outstanding. So we paid for an acre's worth of grapes. Most people pay for a ton or pay based on the tonnage. And that gives the grower an incentive to get as many tons per acre as they can. So we paid an average price for how much he got out of that acre. We worked the vineyard ourselves, took the yields down, brought it into Lambert Bridge Winery, which was the winery we were making the wine at. They allowed us. We were working there in the tasting room and they allowed us to um, to make the wine. At that winery, uh, four and a half barrels turned out to be pretty good. So the wine sitting there in barrels six months after—I mean, about a year after we started with the vineyards—and in and six months after the harvest, we heard that a wine writer Robert Parker was in town, and we drank a little bit too much that night, which gave us the, uh, the gumption to take a sample over to Parker at his hotel, and he loved the wine.
2: Wow. Well, and Parker's scoring system, if I'm not mistaken, really kind of. Took the whole wine world by by storm for quite a while there, didn't it?
1: It did. Uh, that was really the age of the critic, um, both, not just for wine. I mean, Siskel and Ebert, you'll remember them. Sure. All of that. I mean, critics were incredibly important. Frank Pryle for restaurants. Um, the Robert Parker came up with a hundred point scale, which I mean, everyone talks about it being revolutionary. Honestly, in school, we've been graded on a hundred point scale,
2: right, for a long time, for a
1: long, long time. But it really became a cutoff. Anything above 90 was considered to be exceptional quality wine. Our first release, it was one of the top 10 rated Pinot Noirs that year.
2: Wow. And um, kind of went from there. So the the Pinot thing for you has obviously been a passion. And I've, I noticed now, I mean, you only make Pinot Noirs under the Sidori label. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. And where did that, I mean, how did you decide to just focus only on one specific varietal? That's probably... Unusual in, in California, didn't it? it? It was unusual at the time.
1: Uh, particularly, the idea for us really goes back to some extent that that's what we love to drink. One of the greatest things about Pinot Noir is, unlike some other grape types. Pinot seems to drink well early in its life. I mean, you can buy a bottle off the shelf right now of a new Pinot Noir, and it generally drinks pretty well. That doesn't mean it's not going to be better, perhaps, with a couple of years. But the idea of popping it immediately, while some of the great Italian wines of the world, um, some Cabernets, some long-lived Cabernets, the Bordeaux that I mentioned earlier, sometimes they don't taste as good immediately in their youth as they do given some time. Pinot does tend to show well early in its life. So that's part of the reason that we really fell in love with that. The other thing is, and it's an odd thing, but we didn't have any winemaking experience. We had just talked to people and listened to people about making wine. Pinot requires that you do everything great, sometimes just to make a pretty good wine. There's no in-between. And while that makes it... Um, more demanding. In some ways it made it easier for us. We didn't have this option. We weren't thinking of the financial implications of what our yields were, anything right. like that. We were just going all
2: out to try to make the best Pinot Noir that we could. So you started out in mid nineties, you owned the, you owned your operation. It sounds like you were growing grapes. And now at some point you transitioned from a Owner, just a strictly winemaker. When when did that happen, and and was there a reason you got out of the out of the business on that side of it? Yeah, So the the winery grew. I
1: mean, we started at that first year with 107 cases, four and a half barrels. Uh, we had grown it to the point that it was about 20, 25,000 cases, and it was distributed in forty two ish states, something like that. Wow. Um, out of the the country in a, a few different markets. Uh, it was at some point the winery had become bigger than we'd ever imagined more successful than we'd ever imagined we had at one point in time a person offer uh, talk to us about selling the winery. we pulled together all the financials there were good friends of ours Uh, that conversation didn't work out but since we already had the information pulled together we had another friend who brokers wineries and we're like Let's just see what it's worth. Shop we're no, this around for us. We're right? in no need. And we had five different wineries get involved. And um, ultimately, Jackson Family Winery owns Kendall Jackson, but many other labels sure. came to us. Uh, Barbara Banky, who owns it, and made an offer to purchase the winery that really was too good to pass up. And with the option for me to stick around, um, run the winery, do the, uh, the winemaking, it, it was... The best of both worlds it took a lot of the financial uh, i wouldn't say difficulties but the, the the financial responsibilities off of our plates
2: sure and so you got to keep the fun part oh, i got to keep the fun part definitely so speaking of fun i love to drink wine uh we were talking before the show about what we both drink uh and i'm a little bit all over the map uh, had some fun experiences back in louisiana where the the culture of food and wine is is a long and uh you know, really delightful one, and I'm drinking a ton of rosé these days. You said that you are too. I think. What's yes. what's what's your take on on sort of the whole rosé trend nowadays? And and I guess as a se- second question, what are you drinking that uh, you know? Maybe some of our listeners might be curious to hear about.
1: Sure. Yeah. I I mean, rosé has definitely taken off. I saw a figure just the other day. It's something called Nielsen Scan surveys, which scans more grocery store sales, that kind of thing. But rose is up between fifteen and sixty percent year over year. I mean, it's it's huge the type of growth. Uh, while the average, while the whole wine business as a whole is up two and a half percent, so wow. it's rose is really really taking off. Um, and what we're seeing is that it's filtering from the coasts to the middle part of the country. Um, it, it's It it is booming. I think the only thing that is going to be challenging with it at some point in time is every winery out there is also now making a rosé. And I've heard at least from some people in California that instead of their retail shop carrying two or three rosés, they're carrying 20 or 30 rosés. Their sales are up somewhat, but no individual wineries rosé sales are up that much.
2: Right. I, I can vouch for that. I mean, I'm thinking of my local grocery store. Here in San Antonio, and I would say, without a doubt, there's a dozen to 15 rosés sitting right there on the shelf.
1: Um, I think one of the challenges, too, is going to be getting past the mentality that it's a seasonal drink. And I tend to drink seasonally. We were talking about that as well. Uh, and I'm fortunate in Northern California that we tend to get cool most evenings, even in the heat of the summer. So you can find yourself drinking red wines easy. But when I'm back here in Texas, I find myself drinking Sauvignon Blancs a, a good bit, um, crisper whites of any shape or form, and dry rosés. Right. And uh, that um, I, I think a lot of people still have the mentality. Even a lot of restaurants and retailers have the mentality that rosé is something that is going to last. They're going to bring in the 15 or 20 that you were talking about, but as they get into the wintertime, they're going to cut that selection down to five.
0: Right. Hello, this is Danny Anderson, president of Trinity University. Thank you for listening to the Learning Together podcast series brought to you by Trinity's Office of Alumni Relations and Development and produced here on campus by our friends at KRTU 91.7 FM. We're so glad you tuned in today and we appreciate your continued support of lifelong learning at Trinity University. Welcome back to the Learning Together podcast from Trinity University. I'm Nathan Cohn. Let's return to our conversation with Adam Lee and Hugh Dashbach talking about wine selections.
2: Well, you talk about seasonality and that sort of leads into one of the other things we were talking about, which is that some people, historically especially, I think drank and shopped for wine kind of based on sort of rules and guidelines that I think were somewhat imposed upon us. You know, summers are for crisp whites and winters are for big, bold reds. And I think nowadays it's really just, it seems like drink what you like. Is that kind of what you found in your in your work?
1: I think that the rules have been thrown out the window. I, I mean, the whole red wine with meat, white wine with fish type situation has really gone away and there are so many different food preparations that were are available to us now um, as far from all around the world uh, that you can have a uh, fish that is as hearty mm. as a lot of red meats you can have red meat that's lighter and delicate depending on preparation and type of meat there's so many differences out there that I don't really think there are any wrong, pairings. If it's something that you enjoy, then... Right.
2: Well, that makes sense, because as the as the world gets smaller and smaller, we're drinking wines from regions that we maybe wouldn't have even had access to years ago, and there are foods that are just as much a part of that culture as the wines are, and just because you're drinking a Tuscan Red or whatever, whatever the region may be, a recipe from that area is probably just by the very nature of the culture going to pair well with that wine, no matter what time of year it is.
1: It's undoubtedly true. One thing I got to give you credit for, I mean, you're talking about Louisiana earlier. I do think new Orleans is the best food city in the country. And the reason I have always thought that is if you and I could be magically transported someplace to a different city in America, um, the one place I think you could sit down, you wouldn't know where you are. You look at the menu, you would say I'm in new Orleans because you could recognize the different food dishes that are being used in a typical New Orleans restaurant—that's not the true in New York or Los Angeles or San Francisco in the yeah, same way. Yeah, you're
2: very right. My family is all still there, and uh, there's no doubt about it. I enjoy when I go back. I've got a couple. We have a couple spots that we love visiting, and it really is a signature style of food that New Orleans does and does well. It's not to say you can't find some of that more international, eclectic variety nowadays, but you're right. There is a real Uh, Predominance of that classic Creole cuisine that if you just were blindfolded and walked into Galatoire's or yeah or uh, or any other of the where do you get turtle soup? hmm? Commanders can do (laughs) it. Commanders, of (laughs) course, exactly. Pop a little
1: sherry there. Yeah, where else in the world? Mm, I I mean, really. So there are things like that that I think are really unique. And you know, wine-wise, I look at their wine list. They are Oregon Pinot Noir. And Burgundy is, for some reason, they right. gravitate towards those. That's one area we didn't really talk about before this started. Oregon Pinot Noir is up and coming in a way. Uh, we started making Oregon Pinot our second year in 1995, and we've been um, doing Oregon ever since. And it's an increasingly big part of what Suduri does. But Oregon used to be a wine that Pinos Pinots that were sold in the Pacific Northwest and then kind of in the East Coast New York area because it was more similar to Burgundy. Now Oregon's been on a string of incredible vintages, um, 14, 15, 16, and now 2017 all look to be extraordinary vintages. And Oregon's never had that string of fantastic weather before. And the quality of Oregon is extraordinary and catching on throughout the country.
2: Well, I, I saw earlier, I was reading up a little bit about your your winemaking and your style and you buy grapes from kind of all up and down the west coast is that unusual Uh... it's very unusual to be that spread out we
1: kind of copied our model if we really gave it any thought on a small california winery called william selium that did a lot of single vineyard pinot noirs wines from very specific places but they did it all within sonoma county within the russian river area we were very spread out we went from oregon Throughout Sonoma County, down to Monterey County in the San Lucia Highlands, and then down to Santa Barbara. So put a lot of miles on a beat-up Acura at one point in time.
2: Now, does it take? I mean, as a winemaker, did you feel like you had to learn how to sort of finesse and caress those grapes and those flavors different, different, in different ways from different when the when the product came from different regions? Yeah,
1: Oregon. I mean, the biggest difference is Oregon versus California. There are differences down south as well. Uh, Oregon wines for us are much lighter, a little higher in acid. Um, They are, I guess you would say, more pretty and more Burgundian in in that context than California, which obviously tends to be a bit more New World-ish in the style. Um, Santa Barbara, it's interesting down there, the area that we get the fruit from is called the Santa Rita Hills, and it is the only east-west valley on the west coast of North America. So, that it comes in directly, the, the wind and fog comes in directly off the Pacific Ocean. And that area, even though it's further south, is much cooler than you think it would be.
2: So, there's no hills or mountains or ridgelines to buffer any of that cool, cool ocean air? Exactly. And the skins
1: on the grapes become thicker almost to buffer themselves out of that. So, you, uh, from that, um, the, the, the fog and the wind. And consequently, that makes for a wine that's more tannic.
2: Okay. I'm just going to go on record here, saying again what I told you before we started, which is that I'm disappointed in both of us that it's Alumni Weekend at Trinity and we don't even we didn't have a drink, of, we didn't have a wine in we front have, of us. We should have had a bottle in it's, front it's of us. It's five o'clock somewhere. Uh, it is
1: indeed. Well, I am pouring for the uh, the. I mean, this is my 30th year. Uh, the the Sadiri wines are going to be poured at the Alumni event tonight. I think
2: I'm. i It's on my schedule to go ahead and uh, and pop, it be, pop through there. It could be your 30th as yeah. well. It's okay. <laughs> well, listen. We, we don't have a ton of time left, but I, I wanted to ask you about what you're doing next. What you're doing, it sounds like Sidori has had a, a pretty fantastic story of its own. You're still the winemaker there, but you got out of the ownership business. What's what's next on the horizon for Adam Lee?
1: Sure, well, one thing is my wife and I have now decided to do separate ventures, which is kind of interesting. So uh, after having run Sidori together, for 20 years. And I was the wine maker, but we did run the business together. She'd go out on the road and all that. She's decided to get into sparkling wine. So she is now making sparkling wine. She started that a couple of years ago. It's called Flaunt, um, F-L-A-U-N-T, Flaunt. And um, she's releasing her first wine I'm right now. I'm writing this down. Yes. Okay. And I, in 2017, made for the first time a uh, a Pinot Noir, a new Pinot brand I've started called Clarisse, uh, Clarisse Wine Company. That was my grandmother. It's interesting, and in talking about food and wine pairings, I mentioned early on, I grew up Southern Baptist. I never drank. My grandmother grew up um, on a farm outside of Dimebox, Texas, and she was not a drinker either, but she taught me a lot about making wine. My grandfather was a farmer, and uh, she never knew what time he was coming home exactly. So she would cook a lot of things in a crock pot. She would have a a roast in there, put the potatoes, the carrots, all the spices. She told me that if you add things early in the process, they all meld together. If you add your spices later in the process, they really stand out. So I've decided to do something that's not done much in California wine now, which is take very disparate sections from the same vineyard and sample them as if they were one contiguous section, and pick them together when those sections are, when that section seems to be ready as a whole. Wow. So there are underripe and overripe flavors mixing together in one, and so that's kind of the idea behind Clary's Wine Company is doing the blending in the vineyard instead of in the winery later. That's
2: fascinating. As somebody who likes to cook, I I can first of all relate to your grandmother's uh, tips, and that. A really neat parallel to, to carry over into your winemaking. So you talk about family. I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about uh, your first year student son who's here, Christian, right? Yes, Christian Lee is a freshman. Well, uh, right thank now. you for
1: uh, for being a legacy parent. I, I am delighted uh, delighted that he's here. You know, I really didn't want to pressure him to come. He, he, that's one of those things you feel weird. It's like I wonder if he's coming because of me, but he loves it. He's having a fantastic time here. I am taking him to Bega on the banks. He has developed a a bit of a food habit himself. How could he not? (laughs) Yes, exactly. So I'm taking him to Bega, I think, either that
2: or Bliss, one of the two, uh, tomorrow night. You can't go wrong with either of those two places. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for coming in, and uh, best of luck with the new venture. We'll look for Clarice
0: and Flaunt next time we're in the uh, grocery store. Sounds good. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Today's podcast was recorded and produced by Trinity University's KRTU radio station for the Office of Alumni Relations and Development. New podcasts will be released on the first Tuesday of each month. For more information about our Learning Together podcast series or to suggest topics for future consideration, email us at alumnipodcast at trinity.edu.